It's really such an honor to be here and be part of this amazing conference. And it's a real, it's an enormous honor to be asked to moderate a panel on elections, which is among all of the important topics we've discussed today, at least among the most important. Um, political scientists have a lot of different ways of defining democracy, what that means, what is it that makes a country a democracy or more democratic or less. But at the heart of even the simplest definition of democracy are elections. Uh, there are so many ways a person or a group can participate and try to influence politics and policy, but the primary way in which we seek to ensure that the people govern um, and ensure some equality of participation is through elections and through the design of our electoral institutions. And yet, as it stands now, Americans' trust in elections has declined considerably in the last couple of decades. Their confidence in that their own vote um, or that the votes of the American people will be counted properly is down significantly compared to 20 to 25 years ago. And we have candidates and elected officials who are telling people that the system is rigged. So what does this tell us about American democracy and, and what can and should be done about it? That's our topic for this final panel. We have four terrific panelists to discuss um, their work with us and their experiences today. And I just want to introduce myself. I'm Sarah Anzia. I'm a visiting fellow here at the Hoover Institution this year and a faculty member at the University of California, Berkeley, um, at the School of Public Policy and the Political Science Department. And I'm going to be moderating. And I, I'm just so thrilled to introduce these terrific panelists. First is Ben Ginsberg, uh, who is the Volcker Distinguished Visiting Fellow at Hoover Institution. Ben is a political law advocate whose work is focused on election law and regulatory issues, including voting issues and elections, federal and state campaign finance laws, recounts and contests, government investigations, election administration, and redistricting. He's represented four of the last six Republican presidential nominees and has served as co-chair of the Bipartisan Presidential Commission on Election Administration. Ben has held teaching appointments at Stanford, Harvard, and Georgetown. Welcome. Uh, Professor Justin Grimmer uh, is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Morris M. Doyle Centennial Professor of Public Policy in the Department of Political Science at Stanford University. Justin's research focuses on American political institutions, elections, and developing new machine learning methods for the study of politics. Some of his recent projects focus on voter fraud claims in the 2020 election and subsequent elections, and on understanding the impacts of election law on voter turnout and election results, and he serves as co-director of the Democracy and Polarization Lab at Stanford. We also welcome Lieutenant Governor Deirdre Henderson, who is Utah's ninth lieutenant governor, uh, serving as the Beehive State's second highest elected official, chief election officer, and secretary of state. Prior to being elected to the lieutenant governor role, Deirdre served eight years in the Utah Senate, representing South Utah County. She has built a reputation as a strong conservative and champion of women and families. And last but not least, Professor Rob Willer is a professor of sociology here at Stanford University and is director of the Polarization and Social Change Lab and co-director of the Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society. Rob studies politics, morality, cooperation, and status. Uh, he led the Stanford Democracy Challenge, which brought academics, practitioners, and industry experts together in a collective effort to identify effective interventions to improve Americans' commitment to democratic principles of political engagement. Thanks, Rob. So I'm going to start with a question for each of you individually, um, and I'll start with Ben. 
So Ben, a lot of your work for the Improving American Elections Initiative, I want to ask about that, has been studying what you refer to as myths. Myths in the political process that both political parties use, whether it's suppression or fraud to form their electoral strategies. Can you discuss some of those and talk about how fraud, suppression, these claims underlie the party's get out the vote programs? And how, how has this been and has it been a factor in increasing polarization and skepticism about the integrity of elections? Thank you, Sarah. Uh, and thank you for putting on this terrific program today. And uh, I'm really excited to be on this panel with these, uh, these great folks to, to talk about this really important election. Much of what we're doing at Hoover is looking at elections, especially in the context of the increased polarization in the country, and figuring out exactly how our elections, a trusted institution, has come under so much fire and what can be done about it. Um, the polarization that animates the country is obviously a huge factor in this debate over, over what's happening with elections today. And just as a general starting point in the studies, the notion that 35% of the country today does not have faith in the reliability of our elections is, I'd submit, pretty unsustainable for the country and, um, and needs to be improved. And that's not a partisan statement. Uh, it, it would affect the ability to govern of a Democratic candidate if he's elected, but it certainly would a Republican candidate as well, because the toothpaste is a little bit out of the tube on this issue if distrust in the institution remain so high. So how can you improve trust in the institution? Well, I, I practiced election law for 40 years, pretty much in the trenches uh, of, of Republican candidates. And what Hoover and RAI has done is uh, allow me to step back and look a little bit at why there is such a lack of faith in elections. And I think in all honesty, part of that is because of many of the myths that do undergird both parties' sort of positions on things. And the rhetoric around those myths has become so poisonous that on each side, it has lessened public faith in elections. When Republicans say elections are fraudulent, People lose faith in elections. When Democrats say there's suppression, not everybody can vote, uh, our elections aren't, aren't really free because of that lack of voting, you've got to have evidence, no matter who you are, to be able to prove a statement like that that reduces confidence, and that's what's lacking. So what we're trying to do is to look at those myths. Myth number one is the model that each party uses for turnout. Republicans say there's fraud, and you got to go out and vote, vote to stop fraud. Democrats say there's suppression. You have to, to go out and vote to, to affect suppression. There is painfully little evidence of each to justify the temperature of the rhetoric that's taking place. So 
we're looking at studies of both fraud and suppression in the examples, the rhetoric that's used, and in part on the, what, what really is a fraud suppression industrial complex these days, that there is uh, a whole class of consultants and nonprofit groups who are vested uh, in this turnout model in every election year. And there is evidence that, that the charges just do not justify the rhetoric that reduces the polarization. There are other myths as well. One is that high turnout in elections helps Democrats and hurts Republicans. So Republicans, as a result, try and pass a certain set of laws and use a certain uh, set of rhetorical charms to try and, and make the point of uh, high turnout helps Democrats, low turnout helps Republicans. A lot of the laws you've seen passed in states go to that model. So we take, we take a look at that. Um, I'd submit that, that in 2020, high turnout actually helped Republicans. Yes, Donald Trump lost, but Republicans swept everything else in federal elections and state and local elections on the ticket. Similar tale in, in 2022 in House elections. Number three is that vote by mail helps Democrats and hurts Republicans. I'm a Republican. My party is the aging party. It is not the younger party. It is counterintuitive that vote by mail is something that hurts Republicans. And Lieutenant Governor Henderson's state votes solely by mail, so there have been no fraud scandals uh, in your state uh, to, to buttress that. Uh, vote tabulation timing. A lot of the, the lack of credibility and a lot of the problems that have occurred in the last two elections came because vote totals got in late. Uh, both parties are at fault there. Republicans in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin don't allow the processing of absentee ballots until election day or maybe now the day before election day. That's not enough time. It yields late results. The Republicans are convinced that the results will leak early and create momentum that hurts them. There are other Republican states that don't do that. It is, it is a myth. Democrats believe in extending the receipt of absentee ballots till well after the election on the grounds that more of their voters vote late and can't meet deadlines. The obvious solution is to expand the number of early voting days on the front end so there aren't fewer days to vote and to get results done in a timely fashion. And fifth is the new state laws uh, that have been passed uh, in, in sort of great controversy and a lot of a lot of rhetoric, whether it's Jim Crow 2.0 or all elections are rigged. Justin has done a, a terrific paper looking at how all the fighting over the laws that have been passed in the states to extend early voting or open up the franchise has really a marginal effect on actual votes and turnouts. So that we hope that by taking a look at the myths in the process, we can help to restore some credibility, hopefully get the parties acting more responsibly in their rhetoric, in trying to motivate their voters, and to get back to a, the institution of American elections where the peaceful transfer of power that, that undergirds everything we do is restored.
Thanks so much, Ben, and that really cues up a good question for Justin, which um, I've been wanting to ask, which is about your work on election law reforms. And in particular, what does it suggest about how some of these reforms affect turnout and which party wins, what the outcome of the election is? Yeah, well, thank you, and, and thanks uh, to Brandis for putting on such an amazing uh, day uh, today. So I think it's a really surprising fact about this legislation because it's so hotly contested. We had Joe Biden in Georgia saying that uh, SB 202 was Jim Crow 2.0, and we've heard Donald Trump say that if mail-in balloting is allowed, Republicans will never win an election again. Meeting these sorts of proposals, there's massive litigation with millions of dollars being spent, uh, and political parties are forming some of their central platforms around these reform ideas. Indeed, for the Democrats, HR 1 was a bill about <laughs> election reform. And yet, the rhetoric just simply does not match the reality of what we know about these laws. We consistently find that the laws have either a marginal effect or no effect on who turns out to vote, and certainly on the partisan advantage either party has after a law is implemented. And so what we do in this paper is we provide a framework for understanding why this could be the case. And basically what's going on is that we're gonna multiply three very small numbers together to make an even smaller number. That's, that's the story. These sorts of laws tend to target only a small subset of the population. And then among the folks who are targeted, it affects turnout only some relatively small amount. And then among those who have their turnout affected, these laws are unable to target members of one political party or the other. They're usually bipartisan and who could potentially be affected. And so there's a relative balance in the partisanship of who's affected. When you put this all together, it means that these laws have incredibly small effects if they have any effect at all. So let me just give you an example about what I mean here. And, and I think this one's a nice example because it also shows how the sort of litigation and the fight just simply doesn't match the partisan rhetoric. And so the example comes from a case that was decided at the Supreme Court, Brnovich versus the uh, Democratic National Committee. And there's a, a few issues in this case, but one of the big issues is whether voters in Arizona will be allowed to cast their ballot on election day out of precinct. That means that if you're in the correct county, but you happen to go to the wrong precinct, uh, will you be allowed to cast your ballot and have that processed, or will that ballot be rejected? And so a law that had been passed in Arizona said that this was not allowed. If you go to the wrong precinct, your ballot's gonna be rejected. And the case was litigated around whether this provided a partisan advantage. In fact, um, uh, election officials from Arizona, uh, uh, attorneys for Arizona were at the Supreme Court arguing in favor of this law because it gave them a partisan advantage. And uh, those who opposed the law said, look, this is gonna uh, target people, it's gonna have a real effect. We did an analysis of the effect of that law. And in a statewide election, we would expect 177 voters to, uh, sorry, 177 vote advantage for the Republican Party after this law was passed. So in the big state of Arizona, where even the closest elections, the election for attorney general, this is an insufficient number of votes to swing that election. What's more, you might object to this sort of analysis by saying, look, um, sure, it's only 177 vote advantage for Republicans, but maybe every vote matters and there's lots of money in elections, maybe that's how we should direct it, is to getting this advantage or, or preventing this sort of advantage. 
But that misses that there's also considerable uncertainty about the effects of these laws. We simply often don't know whether a law will advantage Republicans or Democrats. This has become all the more obscured because of recent demographic changes in who supports the parties. There's been a large educational realignment with the most reliable Republican voters now are low education white voters. And these are also individuals who are quite likely to be affected by the law. So I wanna be clear here, and one of the points we make in the paper and one of the points of the work I do here at Hoover isn't to say that we shouldn't care at all about these laws or that it's unimportant uh, how, what laws are passed or how we administer these elections. That couldn't be further from the truth. I think we should care deeply about the laws that are being passed, the intent behind those laws, and I personally care considerably that we pass laws that are gonna foster trust in the, in the process of elections. But it does mean that we can opt out of this rhetoric that Ben referenced, this race to the bottom rhetoric where one side says there's considerable suppression and the other side says there's considerable fraud. There's just simply not evidence to support that claim. And we instead should be having discussions about elections that focus on the issues that are actually at stake. That's so terrific, and I have follow-up questions, but I'm gonna save them and go to Lieutenant Governor Henderson um, and ask about your experiences in Utah on some of these issues. In Utah, trust in elections is high compared to the national average. For instance, recently 87% of Utah residents have expressed solid or high confidence in their state's electoral process compared to national polls that suggest less than a majority uh, have such confidence with even fewer Republicans. Um, do you think that these allegations of fraud and suppression have an impact in Utah? To the, and to the extent that this, is, this impact is lower in Utah than elsewhere, why do you think that is, based on what you've seen? Uh, well, they for sure have uh, an impact on, on Utahns. And as the Chief Election Officer of the state of Utah, it's supremely frustrating to me to hear uh, a lot of these allegations, to hear people tell me that something someone they think hap something they think happens in another state happens in Utah and is some big problem that we have to solve. There's a lot of misinformation out there, and the reason is because election administration is pretty complicated, to be honest. It's, it's, it's complicated, and when people don't understand something, they tend to distrust it. Um, one of the benefits that Utah has had, and I came to office as Lieutenant Governor in January of 2021. Before that, for eight years, I served in the Utah State Senate, and I helped push forward some of uh, some of the election reform, small reforms, um, some of the bills in the in the Utah State Senate. Um, there, when I first came into the Senate, there was an, an adage that I would hear senators say over and over that you you should have to uh, climb a mountain wrestle a bear and swim an ocean in order to be able to vote. And, and I just thought, you know what, I, I don't believe that. I, voting is not a privilege, it's a right. For the people who are eligible to vote, it's a right. And as a conservative, I, I just uh, rebuffed the idea that government should arbitrarily make exercising one's rights more difficult without good reason. So we have really, fought hard in the state of Utah to hold two thoughts at once, and that is that you can have secure elections and you can also have easier access to the ballot. And this is something that we have tried to really preach and teach and talk about and drill um, into, into the people of the state of Utah to take politics out of elections. 
uh, at least out of election administration, and that's the goal. We're not perfect at it by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but but we, we do try to do things um, very differently in Utah in just a way that makes sense to our citizens. So we have, um, yes, we're a by-mail state. 98.5% of the people of the state of Utah in our, in our recent, I don't have the numbers yet from our uh, recent general election because it was just last week we had to push ours back a couple weeks to fill a seat in Congress. Um, but our, our primary, our municipal primary election that we had in, in uh, September, 98.5% of the people in Utah who voted in that election <coughs> voted by mail. Only one and a half percent of the voters went in and voted in person. And the vast majority of those that did go in and vote in person did so on election day. We do have early voting in our state. But we subscribe to the notion that we should have people exercise their constitutional right to vote in the way that they feel most comfortable. If that means going in in person and voting and getting your I voted sticker and having that experience, then people should be able to do that. If that means sitting at your kitchen table and taking your ballot, which sometimes in our state, I don't know about your states, but in our state, our ballots can get pretty long. Uh, we have judicial retentions. You know, next year we'll have a presidential uh, election. We'll have a US Senate. We'll have all five of our statewide constitutional officers on the ballot, n not to mention local uh, le legislators uh, and county officials. Um, so our, and then we've got propositions and we've got constitutional amendments. They're, they're really long ballots and you can sit at your kitchen table and you can look everything up and you can make an informed vote if you would like to do that um, or you can go you know, to, to in person. It used to be that you'd go in person, you'd stand in line for quite a long time and you'd have two hours of line behind you and you'd feel a lot of pressure to hurry up and just vote straight ticket or, or just, uh, pick the top person or, or whatever your method was if you didn't know. Um, and, and now you can actually make a more informed uh, decision. So, so people love this. And we actually put it in place. We didn't, it wasn't a top-down approach. It was a bottom-up approach, which I, we've heard multiple times throughout uh, this conference is very important in a lot of ways. Um, we, uh, starting in 2012, the legislature changed the law to allow counties to opt in to vote by mail. And I think that was the key. We have rural counties in our state that they're the ones that opted in first. Our tiniest, most rural counties were the ones that, that opted in first. And then by 2020, when the whole world shut down, we already knew what we were doing and we had the kinks worked out. So that is part of the reason why we have a lot of trust. I mean, we had that advantage over some of the other states. So I, I absolutely understand that. But also one of the things that has been important to us is educating the public. Uh, we have people who are out there spreading misinformation, spreading lies. Even, even elected officials in Utah, some of them, have, have practiced this. And it's frustrating to me because they got elected with the same, you know, on, on the same ballot as the people that they're saying, you know, were elected Ill illegitimately. And so um, we've, we've opened the doors. The county clerks have opened their doors, invited the public in. We've tried to um, educate the public. And we've also had the idea that as much as we like to pat ourselves on the back, um, our, we're not perfect. And our processes are not perfect. And there's always room for improvement, always. So we're continually improving. We're continually revisiting our systems and our processes. And we're not afraid of that. Um, but we hope, hopefully, uh, and my goal is, is to hopefully the policies don't change based on 
the rhetoric or misinformation of a few loud voices. If we're changing policy, if we're changing what we do, it's based in, in, in fact and in, in um, you know, there, there's a, a real reason behind it and not just, not just out of fear. Talking about the lay of the land and the example in Utah is so important because I think it gets us to uh, and helps us with the consideration of what what needs to be done about this. You know, where if we're if we're going to target uh, you know certain constituencies or use certain strategies, what should they be? And I want to go to Rob to ask about some of your work um, on this, in particular, your work uh, focusing on what happened in Utah in 2020, where Governor Cox. Uh, and his Democratic opponent produced an ad in which they pledged to support the election results, regardless of who won. So you've started a project um, that is co-funded by REI, in, in which you are building on Governor Cox's and the National Governors Association's efforts to encourage other uh, gubernatorial candidates to do the same. Um, could you say a little bit about that project, and what do we know about the effects of that ad in Utah and your plans for what's going to happen and what will, you'll do in the 2024 election? Sure, happy to do it. Um, <clears throat> I want to say thanks to, to Brandis and, and RAI for this amazing convening. Uh, it's been terrific, all these panels, and, and it's an honor to be on, on this one. Uh, so if you all are, I don't know if you all are familiar with this public service announcement that Governor Cox and his gubernatorial challenger in 2020, Chris Peterson, put together in the final weeks of the 2020 election. But basically, they got together, filmed a series of short public service announcements where they uh, gave essentially bipartisan endorsements of the electoral process. So they got together and they said, hey, we're in the final stages of this campaign. We have very different visions for Utah and for the country. We hope to beat the other one. So we're clearly competing. But at the same time, we also are pledging to you know, to hew to the rules of the game. Like we're gonna acknowledge the results of the election, at the Utah and the national elections. And, uh, and in a way they're sort of surfacing this thing that's implicit in, in our democracy, which maybe you all see very vividly in political theorists see, but everyday citizens don't, which is that in an election, yes, you're competing at a level, but you're also cooperating at another level. You're committing to follow the rules of the game, to acknowledge the results. When the referee blows the whistle, you're gonna stop and you know, you're gonna follow the rules. Um, but that's been left implicit for a long time, and I think that's part of why this ad is so striking, or the series of PSAs that, that they filmed, and strongly recommend you, you check them out. They're even, they're even kind of touching. Uh, so, we were really interested in what kind of effects an ad like this might have on everyday citizens you know, in Utah, but, but beyond. And so we tested it in the context of a very large survey-based experiment that we did a couple years ago, uh, which Sarah mentioned, the Strengthening Democracy Challenge. It was just one of several ideas we tested, but it was one of the most effective ideas that we tested for reducing Americans' levels of animosity towards their rival partisans, support for bipartisan cooperation, it reduced people's support for political violence and their uh, support for undemocratic practices. So, you know, one of the more effective things that, that we tested, uh, these are small effects. They didn't uh, endure for a long time. You know, watching a one-minute uh, public service announcement, you know, we didn't find any evidence that that was transformative <laughs> three weeks later. But it was a good proof of concept that something like this, uh, it's not going to make things worse. And, uh, and it, could, it could make a difference, especially if you could scale it. You know, if you could get more people doing stuff like this, get more of our elected officials committing uh, to endorsing the electoral process publicly in, the, in a similar way, it, it could really make a difference, potentially. 
so we want to kind of go that next step. Uh, Governor, uh, you know, Governor Cox is now the chair of the National Governors Association, and in that position is trying to scale what they did in 2020, which is, which is I think, an admirable thing to do with that position. And they've crafted a, a campaign called Disagree Better, where they try to get pairs of Democrat and Republican politicians together to do something like what Cox and Peterson did. So like endorse the democratic process and uh, you know, communicate mutual respect by appearing you know, on film together uh, and, and sort of say, you know, like, we disagree. We have like really serious, you know, like morally rooted disagreements we need to work on here, but we also can have a civil conversation. You know, we can work together and cooperate on policy. And uh, so they're starting to roll these out, they're starting to produce them, and we're gonna do a field experiment that's uh, funded you know, in large part by RAI's generosity and uh, is possible because of that. And our hope is that we'll find similar results uh, for people watching these public service announcements out in America. So we're gonna you know, randomly assign Americans to see lots of these public service announcements in the course of their organic TV watching or not. And then uh, in this, uh, this assessment led by Haggai Weiss, who's a postdoc here at, at Stanford, we're gonna see if it has a sort of positive effects on partisan animosity, undemocratic, you know, support for undemocratic practices, and also faith in elections. And, and the hope is that, that it could make a difference. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's great. Well, I, so a couple of questions I wanna throw out to the panel to see who wants to, to take them. One is a follow-up on um, some of the things that Justin was talking about, which is, Look, if, if, if these reforms that are being passed by so many states, or at least being considered, are, are not having a big impact on turnout, are not having a big impact on the partisan outcome of an election, why all the sound and fury? What are they doing, right? So there's that. And then I think the maybe more concerning one is how can politicians be incentivized to promote well-functioning electoral processes and then boost voter confidence in them when as you were saying, Ben, there are these electoral advantages to you know, raising skepticism about precisely those things. How can those incentives for politicians be shifted? Well, for starters, you know, what happens at the ballot box is the ultimate incentive for politicians. So if in an election, a theory like election denialism is rejected uniformly and consistently, that is the single best thing you can do to incentivize politicians. Um, given that we are in a C3 uh, environment, uh, I mean, I think the other things are uh, talking about the processes in an election and showing really what Lieutenant Governor Henderson said they do regularly in Utah and isn't done everywhere, but talking about the safeguards in the election system to make it right so that when a politician comes up and starts criticizing the election, the election officials uh, and even other public officials are armed with the material about why elections do work. I mean, historically, elections have had great credibility, so there was no need for election officials to try and say how they work. That has obviously changed in recent history, but it is sort of a longer process to, to get people talking about it. Anybody else want to weigh in on the questions I threw to you? 
Rob, I think go ahead. in terms of shifting incentives, I mean, one thing that that could be helpful would be more donor intervention in this space. You know, I think that uh, for one one thing that I would love to see is to see donors that don't believe in election denial and think that it is destabilizing, you know, to the government and society in a way that's undesirable for them. Uh, you know, intervene and say, you know, we will, you know, I'm giving my regular political donation to, to these candidates if they will commit to publicly endorsing elections via something like uh, Governor Cox's public service announcement series. And that's the kind of thing that could actually shift incentives a bit. I mean, as well as I think better awareness of what the data is really showing. So like Andy Hall here in the, in the GSB at Stanford finds that yes, in 2022, there seemed to be a small uh, advantage in primaries to election denial on the Republican side, but uh, there was a slightly larger and probably more certain uh, deficit in general elections, suggesting election denial was a little bit of an electoral trap of like, you might gain a little bit in the primary, you might not have needed it, depending on what your primary is like, uh, but then you're, you lose a bit and with a little more confidence uh, in the general. And so from a donor's perspective, they've got a longer term vision. They're like, oh, that's a trap. I don't want that if I can avoid it. Uh, a politician that's scrapping to even get nominated is in a somewhat tougher spot. Yeah, can I go to you and your experiences in Utah, uh, and from your experience, how, that ad in particular, right? Um, do you, how did it affect the way Utah residents saw the election processes? and the claims that were going around about illegitimate elections, like perhaps if you're open to talking about it, even Trump's claims about the subject. Yeah, so I think what that ad did, and, what, and, and in Utah, the governor and lieutenant governor run together on a ticket. So we were both mm -hmm. running um, in 2020. Uh, it was a really uh, vicious race. Um, we had tried hard, uh, Governor Cox and I, then he was lieutenant governor at the time. We'd, we'd kind of made this you know, pact. We're, we're, we're not going to uh, let ourselves devolve to the, to the level of some of the other candidates in the, in the race. I mean, outrage sells and people can't, negative campaigning, people engage in negative campaigning because it works, right? And, and we, we thought, we don't care if we lose the race, we're going to stay ab above the fray. But what I think that ad and, and the, uh, when leaders at the top um, they defend truth and they don't give in to the negativity, it may not change certain people's minds, but it will help some people and it's those some people that we're after, right? It, it gives cover to the people who maybe don't believe all of the denialism and the outrageous claims and the, and the crazy stuff they hear or see on social media or, or see on TV, um, that have some doubt in that. It gives some cover and credibility to those doubts mm -hmm. that they have. And, and that's a really good thing. So, so I think that, it's not easy to change, to, to, to right this ship, but it is possible, I am hopeful, and it absolutely has to start with the people in, in the, at the top, in, in the public sphere, who have the, the microphone. Um, people who maybe don't, maybe don't cast doubt on other states' processes. Um, in order to try to bolster the credibility of your own. You cannot build up while tearing down. You can't do it. So, so having these conversations and helping uh, political leaders, community leaders, know that their 
Um, it's not hopeless. The, the negative voices out there are loud. They are sometimes awful, um, but, but there are people who can be swayed. We want them to be swayed by positive messages, not negative false information. Yeah, I, I want to stay on this a little bit um, and, and ask Justin a, a question about this, which is, um, okay, the 2020 elections, uh, claims regarding the counting of votes in them. Um, <clears throat> what does your research suggest about this? And do you have suggestions about how uh, we could improve voter confidence going into 2024? Yeah, uh, the 2020 election obviously looms large in any conversation about election administration. Um, my research group has spent a, a lot of time and uh, a bit obsessive about it, identifying empirical claims that have been made about the 2020 election and evaluating them. And I'm very happy to go deep in the weeds with anyone who's, who's curious, but at a high level, the finding is not a single one of these claims hold water. And I don't mean they don't, they don't hold water in a way where it was difficult to assess them and it was you know, a bit confusing and it was initially plausible. Each one of these claims, particularly claims that were made by plaintiffs in the 2020 election, uh, were obviously wrong based on misunderstandings, basic statistical errors, and often, frankly, amateurish analysis, where experts, political science experts that were asked to respond were able to identify this, I think, very quickly. Let me just give you one example of this. A regularly uh, repeated claim is that 66,000 underage voters in the state of Georgia were allowed to cast their ballot. That, it, that's just obviously wrong. The number is zero. But the way that analysis was conducted, several 90-year-old individuals were identified as underage voters. And while I'm sure they appreciated the compliment, <laughs> that uh, it is well within their, their, their rights to cast a ballot in Georgia. What's also interesting about these claims is that they've expanded from the sorts of claims that we've seen around the 2020 election into much broader claims. So uh, Ben referenced the suppression fraud industrial complex. This is the fraud part of that industrial complex. So there are individuals who go around touring the country and they claim that every election everywhere is being manipulated. Uh, they'll go into a you know, small community, in a, a small rural community, and they'll say, Mark Zuckerberg is influencing your school board elections. And that's an obviously, uh, I think it's an obviously abs absurd contention. The evidence for their, their claims are uh, absurd and they, they don't hold water. And we might be able to write this off as a, a sort of group of people who perhaps don't matter much or very much on the fringe but we've already seen them matter for election policy in places like California. So in nearby Shasta County, just a couple hours north of here, uh, there was a push to cancel their Dominion contracts, institute hand counting. The state had to pass a new law in order to, to prevent the sort of last second changing. And it's created incredible headaches for the election administrators in that county. And so another way to think about what's going on after the 2020 election is that there's a group of people, I, I think of them as sort of data vigilantes. They're going around, they think that in every voter file they're gonna find the smoking gun evidence for fraud. And the result of this effort is not just creating headaches for election administrators, but it's really spreading uh, misinformation, disinformation, and undermining trust in the public. So Ben, can I ask you a question on the same, same topic, which is um, what about your thoughts on specific strategies 
that could be used for restoring public confidence in U.S. elections and the accuracy of these voting results um, through improvements to election administration, civics education, whatever it is you have to suggest. Well, I think all of those okay. matter a lot. I mentioned before the validating, getting a document that validates the safeguards in each of the nine steps of the election process. We're having a conference <laughs> next month uh, here with Justin's help where we, we hope we'll produce a document that we can get to election administrations everywhere. On sort of a big global matter, I think that that, that battle is best waged really locally. The national environment, as you've heard from a number of panels uh, over the course of the day and yesterday, is really poisonous. Um, but I think we found that on a local level, people have pride in their communities and know that peace and prosperity is correct. And so going into the most contentious election jurisdictions and getting leaders of the community to, to understand, to study the local election process and then be validators is extremely important. Can I just add to that? Absolutely. So in 2021, um, you know, we, we were suddenly in Utah. We, we felt kind of immune. We weren't Georgia or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or, you know, we felt pretty good about ourselves. And then, uh, and, and then the, the caravan of election deniers started coming through our, our state and holding their town hall meetings. And we got bombarded with open records requests. I mean, like just vexatious requests and, and threats and just horrible, ugly things. Um, uh, all looking for something. I'm still not sure what they were trying to find. Yeah. They didn't find anything. They're still trying to look. But, um, but, but one of the th the message I realized that we really needed to, to stop the bleed. Um, it, we wanted to keep uh, Utahns having. We wanted their confidence to remain high, and we wanted to increase their confidence in in elections. So one of the one of the messages, and we we did a whole public service campaign about this, is to help people recognize and, and remember that their elections aren't run by nameless, faceless bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. They're not even run by the state. They're run by their neighbors and their friends, the people they go to the grocery store with, the people they go to church with. Uh, they're, they're run, these are run locally. And when we messaged that and we featured local election workers in some of these ads, some of them had been poll workers for 50 years. And they, we, we, we got a, a very positive response and, and we were able to drive up confidence from 81% to 89% by the end of the, the election in 2022. But, uh, but that, that local effort is so important. It's also really hard. It's hard, it's a lot of work. It's, it's like the, the starfish analogy where you're just throwing one starfish back in the ocean. It's kind of the hand-to-hand -hand combat, one person at a time, but it has an effect, a positive effect um, on, on you know, mitigating some of that noise out there. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think, so as a, someone in a public policy school and, and a political science department, is social scientists are better at, in some ways, talking about problems uh, than about figuring out solutions to problems. In a policy school, one of the things I appreciate is that we're pushed a little bit to think about what you're going to do about it. And I think we're dancing, we're getting to that a bit. Um, and I also think, um, 
it's only by diagnosing the problem that you start to get good ideas about what is going to move the needle on solutions. But I would love, before we, we're going to open it up to the audience, questions from the audience, but before we do that, really quickly, I would love to hear each of you just really briefly say, okay, without pinning the blame, uh, on anyone for the rise in distrust. Where should our efforts in the next year to be focused? If, if, should it be focused mainly on trying to influence public perception? Should it be changes in election practice? If so, what? Should it be changing the behavior of candidates and elected officials? I'll just go down the line and start with Rob. Yeah, that's a, <clears throat> that's a really great question. Um, I mean, in our lab, the thing that we found makes the biggest difference in Americans' trust in elections is uh, being presented with Republican endorsements of election integrity, uh, that if you, you know, present people with a, a, several of those back to back, uh, that, that increases confidence in elections. Uh, you might, you know, why, why doesn't that happen more? Well, there's you know, really significant electoral disincentives to Republican politicians who, who probably don't believe, for the most part, that uh, 2020 was rigged, uh, but faced you know, they perceive really serious electoral disincentives, especially in primaries. Um, and I don't, I don't know how wrong they are. I think that it's not as bad as they suspect, but I think working on that, you know, like how do you change the terrain of not just perceived incentives, but actual incentives uh, for Republican politicians so that they're in a space where they can, uh, you know, endorse election integrity seems like a place to intervene. So I think the number one thing that, that everybody can do, but of course, people at the highest level, elected officials, uh, it, it's even more important, is to tone down the rhetoric. Um, they have got to tone down the rhetoric. The idea that they can get more support and more votes by peddling disinformation um, or, or outrage uh, is is really it's really repulsive. It's it's a, a an incentive that is completely misaligned with the public good, and if people could just tone down their rhetoric, stop uh, assuming the very worst of everything in the hopes of gaining some political some paltry apparently political support, <laughs> um, then that would be my number one wish list. Uh, so I think you know, there's longer term reforms, obviously would love to reform various parts of the electoral process. In the next year, the thing we could do overnight is reform how the media reports on election night. So one of the biggest sources of controversy among people who are skeptical of the 2020 election is Edison data on the vote counts that were coming in. So there's this syndrome among uh, the networks where they want to count the votes as if this is a basketball game. And you always make the same chart for a basketball game that you can make on election night and see how these votes are counted. Of course, that's all a fiction. All the votes are already counted by the time they're doing, all the votes are already cast by the time they're doing that counting. So simple reforms, even as simple as reporting results only on the hour as an update, delaying in the calling of, of races a bit longer, mm -hmm. I think this could go a long way to just taking the temperature down and removing misperceptions about what's going on in the election. Um, if I could wave my magic wand, uh, and I agree with everything that everyone said, and they're all important, it really would be having each election official uh, engage in a program of transparency of how their elections work, so that there are no questions on the local level about the process itself. And if I was gonna look longer term, I would face the 
difficult realization that we have 10,000 different jurisdictions in this country. And so if you actually want to fix that problem, you need to think globally within a federalist context still of how you can reduce that number of jurisdictions. All right, I would love to get questions from the audience in the back here, please. Um, what gives you confidence that ballots that are submitted are in fact submitted by someone who is a, has the authority to vote? In other words, maybe there's no voter ID, maybe signature author, uh, authorization doesn't exist effectively. Why are you confident that that's not a significant issue? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Um, so first off, voter identification is required in a number of places. So for example, in Georgia now, you have to provide your driver's license number or other sorts of identification. That, what's that? No, 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 I, I, I said in Georgia, yeah. Um, but there's also signature verification in other states. For example, in, in California, when you return your ballot, there's signature verification. You know, there's a lot made in Pennsylvania about a potential lack of signature verification. Uh, and so we can contextualize that concern a bit. So uh, certainly there was still verification in counties that the name that was signed there corresponds to the name that should be there. So that, that was still happening. But also in Pennsylvania, an individual has to apply for that ballot. And uh, so it's different than California where everyone's receiving the ballots. There's not a lot of ballots floating around in Pennsylvania. And to that end, Pennsylvania instituted a set of processes so that you could do the entirety of that mail-in balloting in one stop. Now the question is, another way to interpret your question is, could I assert to you that every ballot that's cast in the election is legitimate? And no one could, and in fact, we know that there was some small instances of fraudulent ballots being cast. Now there's this separate question, were there concerted organized efforts in order to swing the election by doing something like pooling absentee ballots and fraudulently casting or illegally casting those ballots? And not only is there no evidence for that, it would be extremely difficult to do in a state like Pennsylvania. It would require a number of false applications. You have to acquire the ballots, then return them. And we've just simply not seen any evidence of that sort of conspiracy happening in, in Pennsylvania. I know there's allegations from, I don't, I could talk more about, about True the Vote has made some allegations. That evidence isn't particularly strong. And if I could just chime in on this one too. I mean, it, in Utah, we have, signature verification on our, on our ballot envelopes. Uh, Utah State Constitution guarantees an individual the right to a secret ballot, so we're very, very careful about making sure that we can't ever match up a ballot to a voter, um, but we do match up the envelope to the voter. Um, there, there are barcodes that, that that ballot is directly tied to that, that, that envelope, is directly tied to the, to the voter. Uh, they sign the outside of the, the envelope, and, um, and our system holds up to five um, signatures of a, of a voter, so a driver's license or um, previous ballots or their voter registration card, um, and, and, uh, and those are, are verified. If the, if the signature doesn't match, and it does happen where signatures don't match, sometimes um, a husband and wife might accidentally put their ballots in each other's envelopes, um, uh, but sometimes someone other than the voter does sign the envelope, and uh, in Utah this happens, it gets caught, every time it happens. And the biggest offenders are missionary moms. Missionary moms who've got kids off in, uh, you know, in, in, in Uruguay or something on a mission and they 
prob probably had their kids' permission and, and signed the ballot, filled it out for them, and uh, they got a call from the county clerk. And, and they don't do it twice. <laughs> one, so. one other point is that each state has its own rules for allowing poll watchers and observers from campaigns. Now, some of those rules could be improved. But just to give you some idea, Donald Trump did claim a 50,000 poll watcher army. You can stick your representative in every ballot place around the country and watch the process. And so if you find something amiss, then you've got a whole contest recount litigation procedure for putting forward that evidence of that. So there have been a lot of rhetorical claims made, but precious little evidence beyond what Justin referred to as the, uh, as the, the evidence. So you do have self-checking uh, that campaigns can do to, to resolve those fears. Uh, Hakeem, did you have a question? Go ahead. Good to see you too. Thank you. Uh, this has been fantastic. So thank you, Brandis, and thanks to the panel. I, I suppose my question, and Justin might have anticipated it, uh, is I'll pose as a question. Are we worried about what I see as a false equivalence in language, say, the fraud, suppression, industrial complex? There is no evidence of fraud at any large scale in American elections. I think we'd agree on that evidence. But there is, I think, quite a bit of evidence that the panelists are all quite aware of, of attempts to suppress the vote. And so it's a different question as to whether those attempts work. But the idea that there is alarmism that's unjustified in terms of attempts to suppress the votes Seems to, seems to miss the mark. And so I suppose the question is, are we at all worried about a language that puts these claims on the same plane, that claims about fraud and claims about suppression can be considered equivalent? I, I, don't, I don't mean to create a moral equivalency in what's gone on in the past few years. And there have certainly been examples of suppression in the history of the country, just as there have been examples of widespread fraud in certain elections in the country and big city voting machines that did apparently do fraudulent things. That's why the eternal vigilance of people in the polling places is really, really important. And in every polling place in a contentious jurisdiction in the country today, you have a squadron of over-caffeinated lawyers looking for some problem to be able to report on election day. That's why when I say you've got to be able to present the evidence of it, I think that's true. And the, the rhetoric that I'm referring to is, for example, the Jim Crow 2.0 uh, rhetoric about Georgia. I mean, the factual basis for that was that Georgia reduced its early voting days from I think it was 23 to 17, which is still seven days more early voting than a democratic state like say Delaware. So that the rhetoric that does create a lack of confidence is prevalent on both sides. The, I, I take the point that the Republicans have done far more in the past few years 
about it. And, and that's, the, we're, we're, that's the evil you got to deal with for right now. But it's true on both sides. For a minute, I thought that was my cue to yeah. stop yeah. the panel. But we have time for one or two more questions, I think, here yeah. in the middle. <laughs> Can you address um, the national, the, the Voting Rights Act that um, was gutted? I mean, I, I, we're having this conversation about the fact that there is fraud. And I think that Justice Ginsburg wrote in her dissent in one of these cases that you know, we have to be continually vigilant because of our history of voter suppression and fraud. So um, how, how does the National Voting Rights Act and uh, play into this discussion about um, fraud and suppression uh, language that you're using? I'll say, as a state, we have to abide by it. Um, and and uh, in fact, we actually have a, a county in, um, in Utah a number of years ago. It's, it's under the jurisdiction of the Department of Justice now. I mean, no, no, no one wants to admit that, that, that they might have a county in their, in their state that was so egregious in some of their practices that they ended up having to be babysat by the Department of Justice. Um, but, but the fact is that we do in the state of Utah. Um, uh, a, a county it, that had um, some, some things ha happening years ago, um, a, a county with a large population of Native Americans. And, um, and so, you know, we, we absolutely have to take all of that into account. And I, and I would just add, too, that um, there, there's more than one way to suppress a vote. And, uh, and, and so, in, in my mind, as an election official, it's important, and as a, as a former policymaker, I guess former legislator, important to make sure um, that I'm, I'm looking at systems and processes as a whole as, as to whether or not those systems or processes are good or, or not good in, in helping people exercise their constitutional rights. I should not be looking at these systems or these processes based on an, uh, a hoped for outcome. Um, because if it's good for me to do that, it's going to be good for someone else to do that. And, and that's what people, I, I think, are failing to recognize, especially probably some people in, in my party, is if, if they can do it to someone, then someone can do it to them. And, and that's not good for anybody. So uh, we, we absolutely have to take and, and hold in highest regard people's constitutional rights. And I don't know any uh, of my counterparts around the country um, who, who doesn't do that, or any, any local election official who doesn't take people's rights into account. Um, nobody cares more about running fair and, and good and clean and secure elections than, than the, the people who actually run them. I would just add, um, there was a lot of concern about the Shelby decision, for example, and there's a recent paper that shows no effect of Shelby on minority turnout in the South doesn't make it more likely that Republicans are going to win. Uh, if anything, there's a, a slight move in the other direction, but that's not statistically significant. Um, so I, I think there, this is part of the rhetoric. There are decisions people say that the sky is falling. Uh, we're concerned there's going to be a wave of laws that are going to make it much harder to vote, and that simply doesn't manifest. I think because first, there's other parts of the Voting Rights Act that are still very much in, in effect and widely used. And, and second, that's many of the laws that get labeled as suppressive are actually 
often legitimate attempts just to uh, organize an election. For example, I don't think it's voter suppression to have a law that organizes drop boxes in, across counties, but sometimes that gets labeled as, as voter suppression. Um, and so how we categorize that I think would be important uh, for understanding, but also because these officials in general have good intentions despite what we might think uh, they get labeled otherwise. Okay, um, Sharice, and then you get the final question after Sharice. Go ahead. Hi, this has been such an interesting discussion with a lot of great points. Um, I wanted to circle back to this discussion about the effects of some of these uh, voter administration laws on turnout, and particularly the fact that we don't see a lot of empirical evidence about it these laws depressing turnout. Um, but one consideration I was thinking about that I, I want to kind of highlight is the role of a lot of these counter-mobilization efforts, so the role of activist groups that have been really pushing back to try to counter some of the negative effects of these laws, and, and thinking about what, what would be these effects in the absence of these groups that are doing a lot of work on the ground to try to get people to turn out to vote, in response to some of these potentially negative laws that affect that could affect their turnout. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just take that briefly. So this we talk about this a, a bit in our paper and do an analysis of claims of counter mobilization, and the current literature just cannot support the claim that in the absence of the activist groups, there would be some massive effects of the law. So uh, the, uh, there's a uh, paper from Cantani and Pons who an analyzed voter identification laws, and they also find perhaps some evidence of a counter-mobilization effect, but they find at best that that law is gonna, um, maybe that would be responsible for something like a half a percentage point of increased turnout due to that counter-mobilization. So that's not gonna be, uh, help explain sort of uh, the absence of big disparities because of these laws. It would require much more money that's being spent and much more effective mobilization efforts to have any sort of plausible effect. Okay, final question, and then we will welcome Brandis back up to uh, close us out and welcome you to the reception that we will have after this. Um, on the voter uh, oppression front, um, might it be, could there be some kind of effort that when states are changing the law, that there's a particular attempt to make it bipartisan. Because when it is, you know, so often the changes either way are made on a partisan basis and that builds the mistrust. And I think particularly on issues where, say on a Dropbox or voter ID, even though the intents might be, you know, right on either side, you certainly have a history on something like voter ID or in the drop boxes, certainly racial history that you can certainly understand why it would be interpreted as oppression. So even if there's not an impact, and particularly if there's not an impact, the people who are trying to change it, if there's no impact on the voting at all, maybe that kind of can bring people together to say, you know this isn't going to have an impact. Will it really matter if we have a few more drop boxes to get people to trust the system and to not have this racial animosity. So can we come together in some way? And can your efforts that you're working on to dispel these myths maybe bring the legislators themselves together? And could there be some effort on that front? Because I know when I was in the state legislature, 
having those discussions and hearing those stories going back were helpful in changing on the margins, at least. And that was before all the craziness. Yeah, so I, th I think that's a hope yeah. of our effort. It, it is. And there's a collection of provisions from the st all the states which do form the basis of a bipartisan agreement to sort of balance out things. I mean, when I said, for example, get votes in by election day rather than let them come in a week afterwards if they're postmarked on election day, well, have them come in by election day but increase the early voting period so there's every much opportunity to vote for people. The more voting is bad for one party or the other, that's going to be very helpful and that's as you get that information out yeah. because that misinformation and Utah's example is great that needs to be used more to just calm the waters on all of this. So thank you. Well, let's welcome Brandis Kane's Drone back for a concluding word and thank our panelists. It was wonderful. This has been an ambitious conference, which is why we're running a bit over, so I'm not going to keep you from the open bar. Um, I just want to say that following this ambitious conference, which started with a large public session and you know today had the, by invitation only, uh, full day, <laughs> um, we have a very ambitious agenda for RAI. So we hope you'll uh, keep abreast of what we're going to be working on and all the projects that you've heard about that are ongoing and which we're excited to disseminate. Thank you for being such an outstanding audience. Uh, and for supporting the institution, both REI and Hoover, um, and for your great questions. And thanks again to our panelists. Mm -hmm.